Welcome and thank you for joining us on Birth Mother Matters in Adoption with Kelly Rourke Scary and me, Ron Rains, where we delve into the issues of adoption from every angle of the adoption triad. Do what's best for your kid and for yourself because if you can't take care of yourself, you're definitely not going to be able to take care of that kid and that's not fair. And I know that my daughter will be well taken care of with them. Don't have an abortion. Give this child a chance. All I could think about was needing to save my son. My name is Kelly Rourke-Scary. I am the executive director, president, and co-founder of Building Arizona Families Adoption Agency, the Donna K. Evans Foundation, and creator of the You Before Me campaign. I have a bachelor's degree in family studies and human development and a master's degree in education with an emphasis in school counseling. I was adopted at the age of three days, born to a teen birth mother, raised in a closed adoption, and reunited with my birth mother in 2007. I have worked in the adoption field for over 15 years. And I'm Ron Raines. I've worked in radio since 1999. I was the co-host of two successful morning shows in Prescott, Arizona. Now I work for my wife, who's an adoption attorney, and I'm able to combine these two great passions and share them on this podcast. Adoption from a birth father's perspective is not something that is commonly heard. Right. We don't talk about it as much. Much like all of these aspects, you know, whether it's abortion or adoption, the focus seems to be on the birth mother as opposed to the birth father. Right. Right. And one of our goals in the podcast has always been to really make sure that we understand everybody's perspective. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's not just about the the birth mother. The birth father is just as important. Right. When I was meeting with a birth father and a birth mother the other day, I was talking with them and listening to their story. And the birth father started talking about his history and why he is such an adoption proponent mm-hmm. and why adoption is the path that he chose for the second time. And in listening to him, I actually stopped him midway into our conversation because in my mind, it was so revolutionary what he was saying. Mm -hmm. I don't think that his thoughts are revolutionary. I think his ability to speak it is. I think his openness and his candor is something that is not commonly expressed. Right. When he was talking he, it was so real and so raw, and I wanted to make sure that the world could hear what probably is the inner voice of so many other birth fathers. Right. And in listening to his story, I felt that for other birth fathers out there, aspects may be very relatable. Mm-hmm. And for those birth fathers out there with their birth mothers that are considering adoption, that listening to him may help them with their adoption decision. May give them strength. I often, when I'm talking with birth mothers, I will often say things like, it's it's much clearer for you to walk down this path having listened to somebody else mm-hmm. that has walked down this path before you. And you're going to be able to identify with them. Maybe not on everything, but certain aspects. And so I asked this this couple, if they would be willing to share their story, obviously they're going to remain anonymous, mm-hmm. but if they could share their story and what they're saying so that we can bring more light education and awareness to adoption from a birth father's perspective. So here we go. 
all these children that are just innocent. They had nothing to do with anything. And all I seen was money. I didn't care about nothing or nobody until that moment. Me realizing that it was me, that I was the problem with the neighborhood. And that I was the problem with everybody's families and why all these kids are getting neglected and why all these kids are finding out they're, they're, the women are pregnant and they're coming out. And the babies are like drug. They're pretty much high. And I was the source of it and I just couldn't do it no more. I knew that if I didn't break the cycle somewhere along the line, that it, I would be the source of making society so much worse. And it's like, who am I to make the choices with everybody's life? I'm nobody. Mm -hmm. And it's just, in my mind, it's just wrong in so many ways. You know, before I didn't care. It didn't mean nothing to me. If this girl was high, getting high, while she was pregnant, doing heroin or smoking meth, I didn't care as long as I got money. It meant nothing to me. And you made a lot of money. Oh, yeah. And you used to make a lot of yeah. money. Yeah. So what's a lot of money? Like what? Like if you had to uh, say... 200000 in a week. Come again? $200,000 yeah. They, even did, a, they a even did a newspaper article on my brother. This is the one who they, everything fell on was my older brother. But they, they, they compounded. They, they, they took everything from us. They took everything, and everything went off on him. And the newspaper article was about how we made $200,000 in a week. And all they did was just sit there and collect and do whatever I told them to. You'll never really see their faces ever in the neighborhood. I was the one putting out there doing all the work. I was the one putting everybody on in the neighborhood. It was all me. They knew it. A lot of people don't know it, but it was all me, mm -hmm. you know? And it's like, uh, if it wasn't for me, they would have still been nobody. They would have just had all this shit that they could do nothing with. So how did you actually you can't just stop or turn that off. Like, you can't... How did you do it? Did you go to rehab? Did you... I just stopped and turned it off all along. I didn't go nowhere. It was pretty much my daughter being taken and stuff. I didn't that, go anywhere. That changed a lot of his outlook on a lot of things. Because for months, he tried to get me to go to you, moms, and everything like that. And I was just stuck in the streets, pretty much. And even though I was taking care of my daughter and ev she had everything she needed, she had all her clothes, she had food every night, everything like that, she had a place to sleep, it was just, I was just consumed with the streets, too, at the same time. In what way? In every way. She, li like, literally, if she seen somebody that was selling drugs and if she felt like that was the person that was the shining the most in the neighborhood, that's who she liked to attract to. Even though she's not realizing, like, 90, 95% of everybody that's in the neighborhood that are doing good, they come to me and they're like, hey, I need your help. And it'd be me the ones that put these people on. And it'd be me the one that make them shine. And don't nobody ever see it because that's what I do. That's what I do best. I get but, these, like, little rundown drug dealers that, are, that nobody respects in the neighborhood. Nobody ever really messes with them too much. And I'll put, I'll, I'll go and I'll take them under my wing. I'll give them a bunch of dope when no, nobody, nobody sees what I give them. They know what I do for them, and they love me to death for it. But it's like I already did what I did, and I can't take it back to they're already who they are. But I used to literally take these guys and, and like get them, mold them into what I want them to be, give them a bunch of drugs, and send them off into the world. And he was just always off dealing with other girls and stuff like that that were that. I used would to be a go pimp. out and hoe for him and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And so I was pretty much running around the streets by myself. Even though we were together, I was running around the streets by myself and stuff like that. And so I'd stay from house to house, whether it was dope house or not. 
just trying to basically stay safe with my daughter trying to keep her with a roof over her head till she wasn't out in the cold or wasn't out in the rain and yeah. stuff like that even though it was a bad environment for her and stuff like that and I know that but it was just like that at the time that's all I had and so you were still kind of interested in him and you were a pimp at the time see the reason I'm asking you guys these questions is because I'm on the other side so I've got to learn because I'm trying to help other people and so if you don't teach me you're not going to learn this in a book no, you can't. It's impossibility. I, know. I call it the art of manipulation through heroin, especially when girls are on heroin. And people think that these girls are like hauling for me, but really they're not. What I'm doing is I'm literally fronting them drugs here because I know they need it. And I'll give them heroin up front and I'll just keep giving it to them, keep giving it to them. And when they run up a bill, I make them go get it by any means necessary. That means that they got to go and post an ad on, on the internet and have to sell the crack of their for this that's what they gotta go do and they go get my money from me not because they're because I'm really pimping them it's because they owe me money and I'm a drug dealer and they want more drugs from me so, they'll so go they go and they, they'll go do anything whatever is necessary to give me my money so what what would be the consequence like if, what if they said I don't have it then I would just cut them off and they'd be sick and nobody in the neighborhood would mess with them and they'd always be sick nobody would mess with them meaning nobody would give them dope because he was the one supplying them, so if they didn't want to pay him... So you really did yeah. hold all the strings? Yeah. So it went like this. If she doesn't give me my money, if she goes to try to mess with the next dealer, I'll just say, hey, man, look, check it out. She owes me money. Don't give her nothing. And if you give her something, then I'm not going to give you nothing. Keep so going. they look at it like this. They would rather not give this girl nothing at all than not be able to get anything from me. Because then if they're not getting anything from me, then they're not making any money because I was a bully. I'll go, I'll come with my, my AK and I'll sit down inside their dope house and sell dope, sell dope to them and then sell all my dope out of their house and let them see that there's nothing they can do about it. It's either they work for me or they work for nobody or they just don't work at all. And you held this power because of the, the gun? No, because of, well, yeah, because of that and because of the drugs and because of the other people that, that were so infatuated with who I made myself that they backed me. So it's like either you're gonna do it anyway or you're gonna have all these young gorillas that don't want nothing but to earn stripes. They wanna earn stripes, they wanna earn clout, reputation they wanna earn the position, the reputation, and everything in between. And these little youngsters know that if they, if, I, if they do what I want them to, they're gonna live a good life. They're gonna have their own hoes, they're gonna have their own dope house, they're gonna have their own gun, and they're gonna have money, they're gonna have a car, they're gonna have everything that goes with the life if they do what I ask them to. So it's like... What's the average age? Um, nothing under 18, I don't play that shit. These other guys that run around and they, they bully these little young, I don't do that I don't I don't give a yeah. damn. Kids. And a lot, a lot of times, oh, even when they're 18, I'll, I'll get them and I'll give them an option. I tell them, is this, I ask them a question, is this really what you wanna be doing with your life? If they tell me no, I just give them some money enough to where they'll be okay and send them on their way. Here, go do something different with your life because this isn't where you want to be at. I mean, even though, like, I, I am who I am and I've done a lot of things, I still had some type of conscience about the things that I was doing. I didn't like, if they were too young and when they're young, 18, 19, 20, you could easily mold them into what you want them to be in every type of way, shape, form, and fashion. You know, it's almost like brainwashing an individual, mm -hmm. you know? And when they're young like that, if they're already too far gone, I'll get them, and then yeah, with no problem. 
But if they're not, then I try to send them on the right path. Like with me, when I was 15 and we first met each other over at his mom's house and stuff like that, he asked me, he was like, I used to sell crack when I was 15. I started selling crack when I was 14 before he got out of prison. And that was just basically to survive, to get food for me and my mom. My mom worked at Taco Bell and everything like that, but she just, like, by the time she paid rent and everything like that, we didn't have much. So without her knowing, I would just go and I would I started selling crack. And I was selling crack for a couple years and then I then we met each other and he was like, well, how do you feel about selling dope? And I, at first I told him, I was like, I don't mess with that because just everybody I knew, lives were messed up from it. And he was like, so he left it at that. A couple months later, I call him and I asked him for some dope, for some G. And he was like, he was okay, like, you're, back you're up. What is what is G? Yeah. I don't mean to be. Okay. Yeah. And he was like, he was like, you're messing with that stuff now. And my first reaction was like, no, I'm not. No, no. Like I wasn't gonna tell him, tell him, yeah, I'm doing dope now. Mm-hmm. And he's like, he's like, yeah, I'll be there in a minute. Never showed up. And then next time I seen him was we were hanging out at his mom's house. And I had a pipe and some uh, some dope in a bag and stuff. And I was like, I loaded a bowl and I was I hit it and I was like, want to smoke with me? And he's like, he's like, um, yeah, let me see that. And he grabbed it and he looked at it and he was like, this ain't how you load a bowl. Let me see your sack. So I handed him the sack. He turned around and walked out the door with it. And I'm sitting here like, did he just rob me? That's how I felt like at the time. Did he just rob me? And that, not me at the time, I didn't realize it. But now I realize it like he was just trying to get me to not smoke. Because when I first met him, what I told him was that I didn't mess with that. I was only out for seven months at the time when uh, like I, I got arrested like the beginning. of I got out the middle of 2012 and then I got arrested in the beginning of 2013. So I wasn't out that long when I first met her and I got out. She was grown. But the second go around, when I got out that second time, they tried to reco act me in the end. What does that mean? They tried to give me natural life for um, criminal mob boss syndicate, for money laundering, for drug trafficking, for um, for guns. So one of my brothers got caught with, he had uh, 42 counts of misconduct involving weapons, four sales charges to an ATF agent, a bunch of uh, drug charges. They tried to hit us with a bunch of money laundering charges. How did you only get four years? Because the um, we had the same prosecutor, and she was, a, she was a new prosecutor. So when she went to file, she misfiled. She didn't know what she was doing. She tried to hit the RICO Act on us and didn't know how to file it properly. And because she misfiled her RICO Act, we walked. The first time I ever got arrested, I was with his brother that got charged with 42 gun charges. They raided the house that we were staying at, and I just so happened to be over there picking up my stuff. And I walked up and I told him, I was like, you're about to get raided. And he's like, no, I'm not, no, I'm not. So he goes and gets in the shower, and I'm still up there because there were a couple people in the house, and I was just, like, watching his back, basically, making sure they didn't do anything. And one of the people, I about a year prior to that, I told him, I was like, this girl's going to set you up. She's gonna set you up. I'm telling you right now, just the question she was asking me, she's not in it for you. And sure sure enough, we got raided. The police knocked on the door. She got up and answered it and just opened the door for him. And then next thing I know, there's like 30 officers swarming the apartment. He's on house arrest at the time with an ankle monitor and for gun charges, and there's three guns laying out. Two of them weren't actual guns. One was just like a green gas Uzi. The other one was a 45 pellet gun, mm-hmm. but they were the ones that look real. 
So in any case, if you if they look real enough that you can commit a crime like robbing somebody, you get charged with with a real that uh, possession of weapons. With the R's, they're less lethal firearms. They're um, they're actual real they're actual real guns that were converted into airsoft pistols. That's what a lot of people fail to realize. They just changed the top slide out to where the bullets can't pop out of them. And like if you were to take them apart, the bottom part slide and the trigger part, the uh, the actual um, firing pin mechanism that's there is flipped around the, the other way. So all it does is just pop the BB out. You see what I'm saying? But so why use did, those? That's just that's just they, they take old firearms that mm-hmm. that, that are recycle probably, them. Yeah, and recycle them and turn them into airsoft. And air then, and then they can, you can easily try like mix like bake them back to a regular gun with no problem. Just takes a little bit of a uh, little bit of elbow it, grease and it's back into it a regular pistol. It takes a top pistol. slide, uh, a recoil spring, and a firing pin, and that's it. And you can you can convert it right back into a uh, um, into a firearm like nothing. And then oh, and the barrel you got to change the barrel out. And so <coughs> they, they came in, they arrested him off uh, automatically. They pulled him out of the shower, made, put him put some shorts on him, and put him in cuffs and put him in the car and took him to jail. And I'm I'm the only one left. Like that's how I knew the the girl who set us up is because they didn't ask her no questions, not name, not social, nothing. They just were like, okay, you're free to go. And so I was like, I was the last one left in the apartment. They took him to jail. Um, Why not you? Well, they hadn't taken me to jail yet. I I, I was only 18. I had just turned 18. Had no charges. Never been arrested in juvie or anything like that. And they're all like, well, what are you doing here? They're looking at me like, like, you don't even belong in this scene, basically, because I had never been in trouble. And... I was. I asked him for the wallet, which was his wallet. I claimed his wallet so that I could put his money on his books. And when the girl that set us up had taken the wallet and the and his sack of dope, and put it in a, a little bag together, so when they found the wallet, they found a, a quarter ounce of dope, and they were like, "Well, look at here. Whose is this?" And I was like, I, I looked at him. I said, "To be honest with you, I'm gonna tell you right now, it's not mine. But I don't know whose it is." And so they took me to jail. And charged me with a quarter ounce of dope. Possession of dangerous drugs. That was the first charge I ever caught. And then ever ever since then, up in, and that was in 2014. Up until 2017, the, in the middle of 2017, I was dealing with that charge. After everything that we've heard uh, for this first of two segments of this conversation that I had with these two birth parents, I'm almost speechless. I don't even know what to say about it. It's powerful. It's powerful and it's moving. And I want to state to all of our listeners, this was unrehearsed, uncoached. Mm -hmm. Uh, You will hear me a couple times ask a question for clarity. Right. But other than that, this is their story. Mm -hmm. And the bravery that they have in sharing it, I think goes without saying. And so I'm, I'm excited to be able to share part two. 
So make sure you listen to the next episode because we'll be bringing that to you as well. You don't want to miss it. No. We have a pregnancy crisis hotline available 24-7 by phone or text at 623-695-4112. Or you can call our toll-free number 1-800-340-9665. We can make an immediate appointment with you to get you to a safe place, provide food and clothing, and start it on creating an Arizona adoption plan or give you more information. You can check out our blogs on our website at azpregnancyhelp.com. Thank you for joining Joining us on Birth Mother Matters and Adoption, written and produced by Kelly Rourke Scary and edited by me, Ron Rains. If you enjoy this podcast, rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, thanks to Grapes for letting us use their song I Don't Know as our theme song. Join us next time for Birth Mother Matters and Adoption. For Kelly Rourke Scary, I'm Ron Rains, and we'll see you then.